This is an ABC podcast. An extra extraordinary guest on Big Ideas today. Hello, welcome. I'm Natasha Mitchell. In Ukraine right now, there are allegations of brutal war crimes being committed by Russian soldiers. In Sudan, thousands of people are fleeing to neighbouring Chad, prompted by deadly clashes between the Sudanese army and a rival paramilitary group, the RSF. What will the world say in years to come about these conflicts. Today on Big Ideas, a leader who's witnessed firsthand what happens when neighbours turn against neighbours in war. He's a humanitarian, a peacekeeper, a soldier, a survivor, and ever hopeful in the face of all of that. We will evolve towards, it may take a couple of centuries, but we will evolve towards a time when those differences will not lead us to wanting to destroy other human beings, but in fact to resolutions because we have established us all as equals and there's not one of us more human than the other. In 1993, former Lieutenant General Romeo Dallaire headed the UN mission in Rwanda during the genocide where machetes became the weapon of choice as Hutus turned against Tutsis and the country came to resemble a human abattoir. There's really no other way to describe it. 800,000 Rwandan people, over 300,000 children were killed. The rest of the world stood by and the UN tied the hands of Romeo Dallaire. A generation of Rwandans, many children at the time, still wear the scars of those machetes on the backs of their necks. Their skin is like a living shrine to an unforgotten trauma. There's compelling evidence this morning that the mass killings in Rwanda amount to nothing less than genocide. An old priest now living in Butari said 600 Tutsis in his parish had been slaughtered before his eyes. The survivors took refuge in a church where they were killed the following day. There's really no corner of the city that is safe. After the General Romeo Dallaire tried to explain the enormity of the problems in Rwanda. This child was walking around his house inside the house, his parents were still there, dead. And there were a number of other ones like that. And there's nowhere to put them. Well, we need his help. That little kid needs help. The general said the last few days had shown that as the war continued, so would the killings. General Dallaire, a former commander and former Canadian senator, is author of powerful books about his experiences, including Shake Hands with the Devil, and They Fight Like Soldiers, They Die Like Children, and his Dallaire Institute for Children, Peace and Security now advocates for children, including child soldiers. He's also a father of three grown children himself. According to the UN, for example, of the over 8,000 killed in Ukraine since Russia's invasion in 2022, at least 500 are children. This is a conversation I shared with Romeo Dallaire in 2015, and it is as timely as it ever was. What an appreciated introduction. Thank you very much. Very special to have you here. I wonder, do you still feel connected in your psyche, in your veins, to Rwanda? I'm now into my 14th year of therapy. I'm taking nine pills a day. I do that because Rwanda has never left my brain, my soul, my, my heart. And I guess uh, one of the terrible things is, is that how do you mourn so many people that you ultimately ended up having to decide whether they live or die because of what you didn't have to be able to help them all. So it's, uh, it's to the extent that uh, it reminds me of uh, what happens to some of the Holocaust survivors who will wake up uh, in the morning and swear that they, they're right back there 70 years before. And mm. that happens on occasion also. You've been incredibly open about talking about your suicide attempts after returning from Rwanda and about the despair and the depression and the experience of post-traumatic stress disorder has talking about it so publicly so viscerally helped you you know i haven't i haven't really found any solace in uh, the writing of shake hands which took three years of essentially going back to hell 
the the writing of the of uh, they fight like soldiers uh, brought me into the tactical scenarios of of that time and so you sort of end up reliving it also and all that has brought me to uh, be writing currently an introspection of 20 years with PTSD and none of that gives you a feeling of uh, well I've mastered the situation all it does is make you very much aware that you've got to build prosthesis to be able to not, not let it uh, overtake you uh, as you work or as you speak of it and that's you don't really overcome it as much as you live with it and uh, hopefully uh, you don't find yourself into uh, such scenarios that anguish can overtake uh, overtake every other emotion. Mm. Anguish and anger because uh, shake hands with the devil, your account of that mission in Rwanda during the genocide was infused with incredible frustration and anger at the incompetency of of those making decisions that really tied your hands on the ground in Rwanda. I think the first thing to uh, bring to the fore is that, uh, I mean, I made mistakes in the field. Uh, the secretary at UN in New York made mistakes. Uh, the Security Council made mistakes. But in essence, the inability for us to prevent what happened, even though we were informing uh, the different authorities through different means, uh, media means, uh, ambassadors and so on, and uh, to thwart in any way the actual genocide, because it, it ended at only 800,000, and I say that not facetiously, but it ended only at 800,000 because the rebels were able to actually stop the extremists. The nations that are the essence of the UN, that is every sovereign state, the 192 at the time, I believe, they refused to give us and give the UN the assets it needed to intervene, be it from mandate to equipment to people. And so the first point of anger, and, and true, there is no limit to that level of anger that still is visceral today, is the fact that nobody in the world had the guts to come and send me uh, troops to be able to stop that thing right in his tracks, even though over 2,000 French and Belgian and Italian troops uh, with Americans on the periphery were there within nearly, well, at best 48 hours, if you compute different times, to extricate the expatriates. But they would not stay to save Rwandans. How can the rest of humanity abandon humanity? And that's the question you asked then and you continue to ask. And yet, two decades on, when you look at refugees flooding out of Iraq and, and Syria across Europe, might we need to ask that question again, just as we did in Rwanda? It's interesting that when humanitarian soldiers, uh, police, uh, diplomats who are deployed into these uh, conflict zones where there are uh, imploding nations and failing states and mass atrocities and so on, these people, as myself, we, we come back to our, our country, our homes, and we see these scenes of uh, terrible disarray amongst uh, so many people and the suffering. It's not a news item for us. We actually can hear these people. We can smell them. We can sense them because we've we've been with them. And uh, not being able to take action uh, because either we don't have the power or the authority just makes us relive those moments. Now, that being said, I was in South Sudan and uh, then ultimately in Jordan in July inside the same refugee camps that they're pulling people out now uh, about five kilometers for, from the Syrian border mm, mm. Uh, with people there had been there for three years just rotting away in, the, in these camps. And so when I people tell me about bringing in refugees, unless you're going to talk to me about 60, 70, 80,000 as we did with the Vietnamese in the 70s, then 25,000 that our country is taking in over the next months is nothing but a decent start to meeting the requirements. Yes, Justin Trudeau has, has 
opened his arms very publicly to those refugees. It's uh, captured attention around the world at a time when other countries are closing their doors to refugees and inciting fear, perhaps even hatred, about the other when it comes to refugees fleeing war zones. We've had this debate very actively here in Australia. The inflammatory debate, the, the I would go so far as to say redneck debate that's going on within the populations uh, regarding the, the Muslim community, regarding the Syrian refugees, is nothing more, in my opinion, than a continued demonstration of immaturity of nation states in recognizing that we are in a global environment and there isn't a conflict in the world that will not affect us in one way or another, be it pandemics, be it refugees, be it access to our resources, or in fact, be it impacts on diasporas that are in our country where we're seeing even recruitment going on and uh, extremism that is being brought upon our young people. Uh, this discussion on these refugees, to me, uh, has demonstrated that we're simply not able to handle the fact that we are global and that these borders are instruments, yes, but they are not the be-all end-all of humanity. So how do you handle the numbers? Well, it seems to me uh, that one of the first things is, is that you clean up the mess that we've created by, in fact, letting countries like Libya, like Syria, like Iraq fester in their uh, complexity of problems and not intervene. We created the the will to intervene. We created the responsibility to protect. Well, we did uh, intervene, we didn't we? We did intervene, and uh, some yeah, some argue uh, four that's, years later. that's been part yeah. of and the, the one, problem. And the birth of ISIS has emerged from the nature of the intervention potentially. Ah, but there's a difference between intervention and in invading a country to re-establish an authority. This is global. Some might argue that uh, the plight of others is much closer to us now through globalisation and social media and communications technology wizardry. I still wonder, though, whether that's the case. But for you, this is very personal, isn't it? And you referred to the, the senses and the smells of a landscape in war. I was really struck by something you said around the time of your return from Rwanda, Romeo. I couldn't stand the loudness of silence. What did you mean? It is an incredible uh, haunting scenario. When you uh, enter a small village with different huts and so on, and it's a, and uh, the streets, dirt tracks, the streets between the huts and so on, are, are simply glistening with, with blood, uh, that you have human beings from all ages and sexes and circumstances, torn apart and mutilated and killed. There isn't even a bird singing. There is literally no sound at all. It is a realization that death is a finite entity and there's nothing there. And yet you're surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of human beings uh, who, who not long before them were, were alive. That silence is crushing to your, 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 your soul, to your heart, to your emotions, and it, and it attacks in the most visceral way your values and your, your ethics of, of what humanity can be and should be. And that remains impregnated into your mind and when you find yourself in the worst of times which is always the night the darkness is always the mm -hmm. great enemy and in you, a circumstance where there is no noise you you actually create the difference so I never go to sleep without the TV going on without lights on and God knows whatever else that I, that I can keep moving to fill the uh, void in a way that's right. It's a vacuum that sort of sucks you and sort of wrinkles you, that prevents you from being able even to think straight, let alone to have the enough serenity to be able to fall asleep. 
It's not just in the darkness of night. In Shake Hands with the Devil, you recount a, a seemingly benign trip to the beach with your beloved family when you came back from Rwanda and just driving along the highway to the beach with your children mm. and your wonderful wife, Beth, in the car. Mm. Had you reliving a scene, a many scenes that you witnessed? What you're, you're drilling towards is the fact that this injury, what we call operational stress injury, which is PTSD, is not something that uh, historically we used to say, you know, with time and work and, uh, you know, a reasonable way of life, uh, you'll forget all this stuff and you'll be able to master it. Mm -hmm. uh, time does absolutely nothing to this. It is how you are able to uh, build that prosthesis to live with it. And so you uh, see sometimes digitally clear and in slow motion exactly what was happening then and you literally relive it. And so the example you use was in fact uh, driving down a road where they had cut a lot of the branches of big pine trees and had simply stacked them along the road uh, with sort of the cut portion of the branch facing the road. And that, so that's white. The rest of the branch is brown and the, the, lead, the, the pines had already, needles had turned brown. And so all I saw there was exactly what I saw on too many occasions in Rwanda where bodies were simply packed along the roads as they were slaughtered from one checkpoint to another. And so it came back to life and it completely overwhelmed uh, me and with you just don't have any tool to be able to restrain it. It, it grabs your senses and you just break down. And uh, uh, those moments are the moments that you try to avoid. Those are the moments that you hope your prosthesis will be with you to, to sustain you know, this pressure. Too often uh, you find yourself just standing there completely vulnerable and breaking down. Yes, it grabs your senses and yet there is, you know, there's no sense in what you witnessed. And you wrote, I know there is a God because in Rwanda, I shook hands with the devil. I've seen him. I have smelled him. I have touched him. I know the devil exists and therefore I know there is a God. Romeo, for, for some, the, the reaction would be the very opposite, that there is, there is no God who can allow us to witness such evil. It's rather interesting because this has been quite a subject for me for about the last nearly year and a half because I have finally started to go back to church. I still sit in the last pew and I don't go to communion yet. I sit in the church finally after 20 years of actually holding God accountable for having abandoned uh, all those Rwandans and having abandoned us, knowing the evil and seeing it and touching it and feeling it. And it's a, a reality uh, that I took for granted uh, on, on the ground there and, and lived it. Churches in Rwanda became mm. a site of horror. People yeah. were thought that they were safe in churches and they became, they became slaughterhouses. Well, the extremists, uh, to make things easier for themselves, uh, used a, a radio station, Radio Milkadin, which, mm -hmm. which was a genocide radio station that ultimately in front of the International Tribunal, all 16 members of that were, were sentenced to uh, having conducted genocide actions and crimes against humanity. But what the, the radio station would tell people, you know, by international convention, uh, religious sites uh, are protected. And if you are within a religious site, then you are protected. And so people would flock to them, missions and churches and so on. And when they were chock-a-block full, they simply throw a couple grenades in and then send in the militia, which were essentially youth uh, who were the, uh, the result of a political party, extremist political party, uh, youth wing being changed into a militia. And then they would simply row after row, slaughter people. And sometimes it'd take them over a day or two days to be able to slaughter them all. And often they simply hacked them enough 
that they would not be able to escape and they would simply uh, uh, bleed to death. Mm. Uh, and so, to me, the, the presence of God is a reality uh, because I couldn't accept the fact that only evil existed. However, uh, I had an awful lip on against God uh, because although I sensed that there is a good, there is a right, there is a God, I felt that he had abandoned us. And that took me a long time to uh, adjust to evil. I know it's there and it's effective, but I wasn't really understanding why God permitted that to be uh, the overriding power at, during that time. Yes, evil was there, but it was in the form of the everyday skin of everyday Hutus and Tutsis, as, as Hannah Arendt always said, the banality of evil. What pulled you, General Dallaire, back into church? Um, my therapy had brought me to the point of saying, it's time to try to find references in your life that although you're working and doing a lot of things and so on, you, you need an inner reference to be able to build upon uh, and not simply continue the anger, continue the guilt, continue the, 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 the fight, uh, the self-destruction. And so it was nearly a fluke that I was at uh, my lawyers because of the international tribunals in Montreal, and there was there's a quite a significant cathedral just a street or so from my lawyers. And at noon hour, on one of the days we were preparing stuff, I walked in the doors, and sat in the back, and spent about an hour of sitting in the in the rear pew crying my heart out, and that slowly gave me a sense that maybe there's some place where I can find uh, solace and maybe maybe even uh, a certain serenity to live with what I've seen. Another scene for you was children. It, it was your first encounter, wasn't it, in combat, in a war environment, in, a, in this case a genocidal environment, of seeing children bear arms. And that's what hooked you into this worldwide use of children as a weapon is how you describe it. It. Um, I was a what we call a cold warrior, meaning cold war warrior. The the cold war. We we were in Central Europe. We had all our equipment, professional armies and our militias prepared, all professional to face other forces and to beat each other up and whoever was left standing sort of win. And, and so I had spent 30-odd years doing that type of warfare. And your father, and all of a your sudden, father had before you as well? Well, yeah, my father... My father-in-law? Father did 28 years in the, in the Army. He did six years in World War II. My father-in-law commanded an infantry regiment. and uh, Military uh, man. Did, did same thing. Mm. And, and in fact, my son, uh, who was a captain, came back from the Haiti mission uh, and we're at the airport and this journalist asked me, he said, he said, your son is in the army. And my son said, I'm third generation army on my father's side. I'm fourth generation army on my mother's side. And we're a family that lacks imagination. So <laughs> it, 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 we, <laughs> I disowned him after that, of course. Uh, <laughs> but, but you, you knew uh, a particular it, type of service and it was in your blood, wasn't it? Yeah, there are pictures of when I was born in Holland because my mom's a war, Dutch war bride uh, and my father stayed with the forces for about a year afterwards as we gave all the equipment to the Dutch to help them rebuild their economy. And and so uh, the, the, the first pictures you see of me is with a military jeep. My father's in uniform and uh, I, I think even my diapers were khaki. I'm not, even, I'm not sure. <laughs> so there was no debate there. It was sort of a continuum. You just didn't escape it. It was there. Yes, it was interesting. I mean, we'll come back to your work now, but, but many in, in your post-war generation with a humanitarian heart turned to peace protests as a response to war and you turned very much to the army because of your family influence. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, although in the 60s uh, when I was going through military college and we had Vietnam that was escalating and so on and all the anti-Vietnam movement, there was never a debate whether or not I should 
continue to serve because uh, in in my opinion yeah there was a lot of anti-nuclear uh, the war was very focused against the Americans uh, there was a certain revulsion against the military pers- people amongst our colleagues but it wasn't so so deep as to change the nature of a nation-state to find another means than having military forces to provide it the protection it needed. And so uh, my colleagues and I who had careers sort of weathered that time only to find out as an example with the end of the Cold War and with the peace dividend that all the doves during the Cold War had turned into hawks in the post-modern era because they wanted more troops deployed in peace support and peacemaking operations around the world where we had all these imploding nations. And all the hawks uh, of the Cold War had turned into sort of doves because mm. we, we didn't want to get into that kind of stuff. It was complex, it was messy, it was not classic soldiering, and we really didn't mm. know exactly what the hell to do. Mm. The doves turn to hawks, the hawks turn to doves. The combatants in war zones have got smaller and smaller and smaller, as have the guns. And you, based on early encounters in Rwanda, have made child soldiers at the heart of what you do now. What did you see in relation to children in Rwanda? What have you seen since in war zones of the world? I have seen them being used massively during the genocide. Uh, one in preparing the genocide by intimidation and so on, you know, using young youth, you know, the 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds and so on, so influential they are. I've seen them then turned into actual individuals who slaughtered with reckless uh, abandon because, as they said themselves, once you've killed one or two after that, you just discuss how you do it more effectively. And and so the bulk of the 800,000 were slaughtered by young people mm. with machetes who had been indoctrinated. Then I, I got involved uh, when I was medically released in 2000 with an international conference on uh, war-affected children because more and more we were seeing that in these nations that were falling apart and going into catastrophic failure, uh, that the demographics of these countries were massively skewed towards young people. So young. Uh, And some countries had 50% under 15. And so they were absorbing the bulk of the hurt, but also they all of a sudden had turned into uh, one of the most sought-after weapons platforms and weapons systems because all the actual rifles and machine guns were so uh, light that nine, ten-year-olds could use them, uh, and the proliferation of small arms at the end of the Cold War became massive, particularly from the eastern uh, countries, because they didn't destroy any of them. They simply sold them off for dirt cheap. So Mm -hmm. you had all these kids, you had all these weapons, and you had uh, people who were going to sort out, uh, finally, their countries uh, by getting rid of dictators or replacing dictators uh, or dictators defending themselves. And uh, the most effective and fast means of establishing yourself within a, a country to influence um, by use of force was to mobilize young people. And you mobilize them by force, by drugs, by intimidation, by simply killing, and by raiding schools and the like. And all of a sudden, as the 90s kept on going, uh, the tendency grew to turn these young people into one of the most effective weapon systems of our times, yes, it's because a, they they did everything. It, I mean, they did everything from front from killing and maiming, all the way through to all the logistics. And once, uh, with the optional protocol on child rights, children who do any type of work in a force are considered child soldiers, be they doing cooks or whatever. And the girls, forty percent of them are girls, are also used as sex slaves, and bushwives. I mean, you can't find a sustainable capability uh, that is more available, Mm. not necessarily more effective, most effective, but certainly more available than child soldiers. And easily manipulated and often children in desperate need. So it's a survival mechanism for them. They need food. They might have lost their families. The family becomes the rebels or the fighters. Children as armed combatants, though, General Dallaire, confuse everyone in a war. Because 
the, the question of agency in a child soldier is very complex. They become chillingly ruthless killers in some case. They are devoid of emotion, of maturity, of morality, and yet they are still children. This is very confusing and, for and people. Their vulnerability, uh, on the one hand, brings you to want to um, give them more space. Uh, that creates enormous uh, tactical problems for forces that, that face them. But uh, there's also the construct that, um, just like in a conflict zone, there is no such thing as consenting adults. In my mission, I had a contingent that was fraternizing extensively, and I confined them to barracks and, in fact, uh, fired a couple people back home uh, because they, they were taking advantage of the fact that these women needed food, needed money, medical supplies for their families, and so on. And women go through incredible lengths to protect their own and so on. And so there's no such thing as consenting adults in a war zone. And so there's no such thing as a volunteer child soldier. A child does not join a fighting force in peacetime, nor does it do it naturally. It does it because the scenario offers absolutely no other option. And coercion and simply the possibility of maybe security and food and survival uh, only to find out mm. that they're used as cannon fodder and ultimately are some of the first to die. And there isn't one conflict going on right now in the world that is not using extensively uh, child soldiers, and there are still seven countries that are recruiting them. And the psychology of this is profound. Uh, you and I have both met Emmanuel Jal, the former Sudanese child mm. soldier, now wonderful music, musician and rap artist. He was recruited by the Sudan People's Liberation Army, the SPLA, when he was about nine. And the way he described it was that uh, he'd been told upon his recruitment, always remember the gun is your mother and father now. And he said to me in a conversation, an AK-47 gives you so much power when you hold it in your hand. With this thing, I can shoot an elephant down. With this thing, I'm equal as an adult. I can make an adult scream and beg for mercy. And the way it was brought to us was that we were told, this is your mother and this is your father. And it kind of makes sense, he said. When you have an AK-47, you will not go hungry. You eat anywhere you pass, any village that you go to, you just sit under a tree and people will bring you food. That's the power it had. He was speaking of his nine-year-old self. Yeah. He's actually done some, some singing for us here in Canada and some of our functions and fundraisers. The children are totally disenfranchised. And all of a sudden, you give them an instrument of power. And in a number of cases, they don't even have ammunition. Uh, but they still have the, the weapon in their hands. And that creates, the, of course, the, the reaction on people who are unarmed. These children, empowered this way, don't necessarily have any references uh, anymore to be able to guide them. I came up to a checkpoint uh, on, on many occasions, but on this particular occasion, I remember this day, it was in the latter part of the day, the, the kids were a little drugged up and drunk up, uh, and so we stopped and I opened the door to get out and this 13, maybe 14 at most, uh, it could leapt into my doorway and pushed his AK-47 up up my nose, and and he had his finger on the trigger. His eyes were hugely wide. He was sweating, and all around him, the other kids were screaming and yelling and so on. And what is so disconcerting about that was not only the fact that you were you had a child. So I mean, you, what do you do with a, a child versus uh, an adult? Uh, but it's the total unpredictability of a child. He could pull the trigger without necessarily wanting to. It was just a reaction. And that unpredictability and the ability to influence them to go beyond any reference because their brain has not been able to master all the references that we use in society and, and as mature, and particularly if they've been in, in a rebel force for a while, makes them so sought after in the ruthlessness of some of these conflicts we prepared a paper, my Child Soldier Initiative, which is at Dalhousie University. We do field-based research. We argued uh, that recruitment of child soldiers is one of the most evident early warning 
systems, early warning measures that uh, the country is going to go into mass atrocities. Because if you're ready to recruit child soldiers, which is a crime against humanity, and what they can do, you are ready to go the, the full way. And that's why we believe they can be an early warning and call upon us to intervene early. And children continue to be the tragic victims of war. In April, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe launched an investigation into the forcible deportation of Ukrainian children to Russia. And in 2022, a Human Rights Watch report documented the gruelling stories of children repatriated from camps for ISIS suspects. Their stories of reintegration were more hopeful. Part of the Romeo Dallaire Child Soldiers Initiative is really, really trying to get a handle on, one, how you keep kids from being recruited. Very gnarly, very difficult problems when you've got failed nation states around the world or, or, or countries run by despots or the like. Then there's this framework that gets talked about, DDR programs, disarmament, demobilisation, rehabilitation, reintegration. There are many possible R's, reconciliation, reconstruction, repatriation. <laughs> this is a sort of framework about getting kids who have been child soldiers back into some sort of semblance of normal life. But their brain has to be rewired. And also, in some cases, they've killed their family members. So, And most kids don't have access to these sorts of initiatives. Where do you think we need to be focusing our energies? I will and have argued that the, the since Gracia Michelle, the widow of uh, Nelson Mandela, did her uh, seminal study in 1996 on... Uh, the growing presence of child soldiers and their their use. We have spent, through NGOs, billions upon billions of dollars of trying to rehabilitate and reintegrate these children. And uh, it has done absolutely nothing to reduce the numbers. In fact, last year, it was estimated that it, in 2014 was the worst year of recruitment of child soldiers with now Boko Haram and ISIS going full blast. And so we believe that, uh, yes, at one point, rehabilitation reintegration is required. It needs more than a few months. Uh, you give them trade. Uh, the repatriating them to their families is often the, the most effective way if they still exist. But those to, families are often uh, terrified of this n no longer well, little person, this, this killer now. Yeah. Well, in fact, that's uh, part of the exercise of effective rehabilitation reintegration is to prepare the families and the communities because whenever there's anything that goes wrong, immediately the people turn to these kids and blame them for, you know, stealing or whatever that, that happens. That's the boys' side uh, who, who are sort of brought back in more under the, the rubric of, of, you know, the sort of the young warrior type of atmosphere and, and will bring them back into the family and the family. And they, and they do respond. There is a response. And yes, there is traumas and they do have nightmares and so on, but they, they are able to slowly build back up if they're into that sort of environment. If but the girls the come back them. heavily stigmatized, don't they? The girls, the girls don't come back. The girls are absolutely not taken back by the families. They're not taken back by the communities. The girls have been soiled. And so, and, and often they'll have one child or two and they're probably sick anyways because of, of AIDS or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so these girls are, are thrown to the wolves and the NGO community doesn't have the depth to be able to take care of these girls and their children. And so they're often either aimlessly continued to be abused or they go back to where they were because it's only the only reasonable place that they can still survive. And that is, to me, a sin, that the, the girls are abused to such an extent. There are some boys also, but mostly girls. And that, however, their societies will not take them back is, to me, a sin against those children. And the disconnect is profound, isn't it? Because when you were in Rwanda, you had little children. And, and yet you had a little child with an AK-47 shoved up your nostril. The contrast between how we think about children in the West and children in war zones is so profoundly different. And I, I, I was really struck at the, at the outset of They Fight Like Soldiers, They Die Like Children, your book. Mm. 
you write a plea to protect the imaginative growth of children everywhere. This is a plea, and yet so many children yeah. don't have that right. I wrote that book with uh, Saint Exupéry and the Little Prince in mind, uh, where uh, we have a child soldier speaking and we have a peacekeeper uh, speaking, and and the cry is to is to permit a child to live the experience of a child and to live the innocence of the imaginary world and to come into the real world in a process that is serene and established and, and protective. And uh, the bulk of the populations that are now in refugee camps and internally displaced camps and that are suffering are in fact children because of the demographics of what's going on. And that to me is where uh, um, the developed world is demonstrating an incredible hypocrisy towards um, uh, human rights and child rights. There was this little boy, seven years old, caught up in no man's land where he shouldn't have been uh, when I was negotiating, moving through the lines and uh, we stopped and uh, we, there were nobody around, people had been killed and so mm. on. And I looked at this kid and, and his stomach was bloated, he was in rags, he was dirty, he was mangy, he was flies all around him. But I looked into his eyes and what I saw in the eyes of that little boy in the midst of that civil war, that genocide and all that slaughter and horror were exactly what I saw in the eyes of my seven-year-old son when I left for Africa from Quebec City. Both were the eyes of a human child, and both were equal. And until we come to accept the fact that all humans are human and are equal, and that we respect that equality, we will continue to let the frictions degenerate into the catastrophic scenarios that we're seeing now. And that continues to be a demonstration of how humanity although we can Skype each other, mm. that we are able to actually communicate with the whole of humanity. We simply don't know how to bring humanity into another level uh, of resolving conflicts, resolving frictions, without having to kill each other and slaughter each other, but in fact, by respecting each other. You firmly believe, General Dallaire, that we, that we all have a role to play in putting an end to the use of child soldiers. How? Well, uh, the engagement of youth is critical. I tend to call the uh, those under 25 uh, in, in our developed countries, I, I tend to call them the generation without borders because they're already global mm. and they're mastering the, the revolutions of technology and they are able to coalesce and to build uh, strength of organization and influence and become extraordinary activists like we've never seen before. And I firmly believe that that capability and that energy coupled with the growth and continued growth of the NGO community, which to me is the eyes and their ears and the, and the voice of humanity, as the NGO community coalesces, mix those two together. Let those kids get their pair of their sneakers or boots dirty under their bed uh, that they've dirtied in a developed country where they saw, they smelled, they touched, they felt, they tasted what is happening to 80% of humanity, bring those two powers together and we are moving towards a global solutioning that will influence public opinion and policies because they are without borders and that is the crux of the solution. Is it though? Eh? Because we saw with the classic social media YouTube campaign around Joseph Coney, head of the Lord's uh, Resistance Army, notorious recruiter of, of child soldiers, horrific stories mm. coming out of children that have survived the LRA. That social mm. media campaign, that YouTube campaign, did it have any impact on what happens under the LRA, under the Lord's Resistance oh, Army in well, North Uganda well, and Congo yeah, and, I mean, and Sudan. Yeah, yeah, and I deployed there. And I, I, I was on the ground there five years ago uh, and we made a documentary on my, my work there in, in the Turi area, in the southwest Sudan, uh, Yambio and all that, and also right on the Central African Republic borders where they were going after uh, Joseph Kony. Let's go back to that campaign you just mentioned. The campaign was an attempt of using a sophisticated means of communications by a very immature process, an immature organization that didn't even give 
the full information and came out with a, the statement, you know, give us money and we will ensure that we'll get rid of Joseph Kony in a year. And everybody joined in and it was mm. a massive movement. They picked up, I don't know, 70 million or something like that. And, and I've seen the Invisible Children program in, in the field and they do some good work, but they didn't get rid of Kony. What's worse, Kony, through that, saw himself as even a more internationally recognized and renowned individual. He gained in notoriety and in stature by that campaign. And so we were totally against the campaign because we felt the information was wrong mm. and that it was not necessarily going to be plausible to implement. And all I'm saying is that, that it can work, but it, they can really screw it up too. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the risks that exists right now. Yeah, so I've long been interested in this relationship we have globally around these issues of humanitarian crisis that have defined your life's work. And mm. Western countries, General Dallaire, somehow think that, you know, we think that we're immune from genocide within our own borders. I've, I've always sensed, though, that the precursors are there in all of our societies. The exclusion or rejection of the other, the failure to act when we see others being persecuted or bullied, the way we denigrate the most disadvantaged. These are issues that are alive in my society. They're alive in yours. Is the West immune? And I would argue it is still quite vulnerable. And vulnerable because we've barely been able to handle tolerance of differences. And we can find all kinds of means by saying we're uncomfortable with different peoples and religions and so on. I even have a neighbor who said they owned a garage and he didn't like serving people who were black because he, mm. he felt they smelled different. And I mean, this is an ordinary person who never even realized that he, that, that he was racist, but it was so. The whole sense of this situation in which we find ourselves tolerating each other versus respecting each other has made the ability of us to resolve conflicts uh, without degenerating into catastrophic destruction of human beings quite impossible. I believe that we can, in fact, uh, respect each other. And in so doing, we can, with tools like uh, the International Criminal Court, the human rights, and, and the technologies that uh, we are going to have, mm -hmm. we will evolve towards, it may take a couple centuries, but we will evolve towards a time when those differences will not lead us to wanting to destroy other human beings, but in fact to resolutions uh, because we have established us all as equals, as all humans, and there's not one of us more human than the other. But just picking up on that point that I was asking about, that we in the West think that we're immune from genocide, but yeah. it seems to me that the precursors are there, the rejection of the other or the strange or the different, the failure to act mm. when others are persecuted. Are we kidding ourselves to think that we aren't immune? I think it's highly inappropriate for us to think that we uh, are able to control uh, our uh, emotions and, in fact, our criteria of civilization and even the application of human rights uh, when we feel a certain level of threat or when people create even threat in our minds. I'll give you an example. Uh, we had an insurrection here in 1990 by our Aboriginal people. Uh, we had to call in the army and one of the ways to resolve it uh, was to get all the pregnant women, children and elderly out of that zone that was uh, in conflict. And so we warned the population around uh, of that uh, and uh, a population that had been uh, frustrated because of roadblocks and everything else of that nature. And so uh, we made this convoy of these elderly people, pregnant women and children, and as the convoy proceeded through these little towns, uh, the people were yelling at them, they were mad at them, they started throwing stones, rocks and bricks. And by the end, we have film of normal citizens, not bullies, throwing mm -hmm. huge rocks at the cars with this anger that they were prepared to kill the people inside knowing that they were elderly people, they were pregnant women and children. So it is just under the surface. And that is why that I believe that more and more as we move towards respect and more and more our youth become 
activists in regards to the sense of humanity and comprehending this communion between humanity, the planet, and this communion between the different elements of humanity, I think as they move the art sticks, we will overcome this intrinsic uh, defensive tool that calls upon us uh, to be offensive. That's in all of us. Despite all that you have seen, General Dallaire, you Mm. are unfathomably hopeful. Why? I wasn't optimistic about the possibility that humanity can do better. I'd be dead. And so I finally decided to try to stop killing myself and to, in fact, try to bring forward uh, the extraordinary potential that regeneration of humanity through its youth gives us opportunities of innocence and opportunities of bringing new solutions to these frictions. And I think that's going to happen. Well, your humanity just drives us all in that quest, I think. What a wonderful hour to spend with you. Thank you so much for sharing so much of your experience with the Australian audience here. General Dallaire, thank you. And thank you. And thank the Australian forces who finally did come in uh, with others, and they performed magnificently, and they, they saved a lot of people. And so hats off to my Australian colleagues. Yes, and I'm thinking of North Korea, and I'm thinking of Syria, and I'm thinking of Iraq. They all live on, yeah. neglected by our attention. Exactly. I didn't say it's going to be resolved this week, <clears throat> but I do believe we're going to be attriting uh, these situations and that we will overcome those differences. I am absolutely convinced that will happen, but it'll take time. It won't be in my lifetime, but I'm going to do my bit and I'm going to influence everyone I can to do their bit as we carry this torch on. The making of peace and our shared humanity. And since that conversation was recorded in 2015, of course, there's been Ukraine, Sudan, Afghanistan, too many conflicts to count. General Romeo Dallaire continues his humanitarian work through the Dallaire Institute for Children, Peace and Security. Next on Big Ideas, two teams and a debate on an important decision we're all being asked to vote on in a national referendum this year, the Indigenous Voice to Parliament. In the age of white guilt, whites support all manner of silly racial policies without seeing that their true motivation is simply to show themselves innocent of racism. One of the key recommendations of the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody was to use community-controlled alternatives to custody. However, what this uh, mostly translated to is government-controlled and operated facilities with some First Nations employees. The correctional services agencies around the country refused to let go. Debating the Indigenous Voice to Parliament proposal, two teams head-to-head next on Big Ideas. Big thanks for joining me on the show today. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You can find and follow Big Ideas on the ABC Listen app and we love to get your emails at bigideas__rn at abc.net.au. That email again, bigideas__rn at abc.net.au. I'll catch you next time. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.